Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Between the butcher. And the block. So the only thing that would make me happier would be being back in prison. Welcome to Between the Butcher and the Block. Oh, good! You never miss your cue. You're such a you're such a good. I got one line. I got one line. I just hit it all the time. Yeah, we have a couple of seppos on today, coming all the way from Seppo Land. Two four-letter C words. In fact. We will call them. What are we going to call them, Steve? Let's let's. I don't know if they appreciate seppos. Let's just go with Kurt and Koss. Yep. Okay. We'll call them that because those are their names. Um. So here on between the butcher and the block, we like to get to know people, but we kind of do it in a well, not backwards way. I think everyone else does it the backwards way, rather than as you might meet someone socially and go, "Oh, hello, pleased to meet you. What do you do?" We're not going to ask that until much later on, if at all, if that's where the conversation goes. Instead, Steve has a very interesting question, don't you, Steve? We do. We like to ask, Cos, Kurt, tell us, either can go first, who are you without using background names, career, uh, relationship status? Who are you? What defines you? Kurt, do you want to hit us off? So I can't use what? <laughs> Names, background, age, sex, uh, career. We want, we want the metaphysical answer. Who yeah. are we want to know what you stand for. We want to know what your values are. We want to... Oh, yeah, and did he also say you can't use language? It has to be an interpretive dance. <laughs> oh, no, wait, this is radio. Sorry. You can use words. That's tomorrow's program. All right. Um, so I would say that I am a human being who's on a quest to figure out what it means to be human. Boss, any thoughts? Yeah, yeah I, I, I would say I'm cool, calm, collective, hustler, and uh, activist. I've got a question for Kurt coming off that. So a quest, we love a good quest. You can't have a question without a quest, right? So a quest to know what it means to be human, yeah? That's what you said. Why don't you know that already? I don't think it's inherent. I don't think you're born knowing that. Uh, in fact, I think when you're born, um, everything begins to define you. You don't, you don't really actively participate in that. Uh, your your early caretakers or non-caretakers um, uh, uh, start to shape you and define you, and then society defines you, and pretty soon um, friendships define you. Um, and so I don't think, uh, speaking in the I, 
um, I had a very good idea. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's, it's, but I wanted to know. And, uh, and so it's been uh, 68 years of trying to shed the skin that uh, I was wrapped in when I was born. Ah, Steve has actually expressed something very much along those lines when we, when we first started out, that idea of, and that's what we're really interested in, is how our values get shaped by our experiences. So when you strip all that away, all of those external definers, delimiters, after 68 years, and I've got to say, our listeners can't see it, but he looks bloody good for his age. Um, yeah, yeah. All that clean living and... Michigan, yeah, no. um, <laughs> nice cold weather. Uh, yeah, and oh, what 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 are you drinking there, man? I'm I'm drinking Woodford. Oh, it's one of my favourites. Woodford, double, it's bloody good. Double barrel aged. I had a bottle of that, but I drank it. Whoops. Um, when you strip all that away, what's what's left? What's there? Well, I think you get to the, the, the deepness of, of who we all are, but rarely journey to that place uh, downward. Uh, mostly it's outward and, and um, things begin to define us, shape us. It is a, it, certainly values are there, um, but when you go inward and down, um, the value, the virtues and the values change quite radically um, things that are external become less important to you um, it's about trying to define what is important to you so and i and i've I, this is after years and years and years of being on this quest i i've I, i've come up with four questions so the overarching question is what does it mean to be a human being and then underneath that are these four questions that i'm trying to answer every day who am i think about that uh, you ask Joe Blow on the street who they are, you know, you're going to get some, you know, externalized definitions of who they are. Second question is, what do I love? Because love is the ultimate. It's, it's, it's what gives us um, everything that it is that we need. It's what, we, it's what we seek. Every, everyone needs to be loved. A lot of problems exist when children are not loved. Um, and the third question is, how will I live my life knowing I will die? Um, and the last question is, what's my gift to humankind, which is legacy? So if you pursue the, the writers that I pursued and continue to pursue, they're, they're all people who are, are, are on that internal journey. Um, and, and it's one of the reasons that I'm attracted to Shakespeare because I think, uh, he's quite unique and fortunate in that he had a fairly long writing career. And more importantly, we have a lot of his work. I don't think we have all of his work, but we have a lot of his work and, and it wasn't he that saved it. It was two actors, two partners, theater partners, right? Um, and I get to look at his plays, the early plays when he was a young man, just coming to London, the big city, 
Um, and he was a father of two daughters and a son, and he had tragedy in his life. And so I, I always try to look at what was happening in his life uh, around the time that he wrote that play. Uh, because I think there's something there that he's trying to define. He's trying to figure out. And, uh, uh, and, and, and then there, you know, there are philosophers that I, that I read, theologians that I read, scientists that I read. Um, it's, it's, it's those that are on that quest inward, 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 inward. I, I agree with you, Kurt. And do you think that's why Shakespeare um, lived so many lives? That he, because he hits from so many different angles and perceptions, that he must have gone through so many um, uh, wide-ranging experiences. Yeah, I mean, he was a small-town boy, right? I mean, he came from a little farming village, and he only had a, although it was a, a, obviously a quite a good education. But well, can, can I jump in there? Could you imagine, like, his third-grade English teacher? Would it yeah, no embarrassment. He was a. He was. He was a. He, he probably was beaten, you know, with a ruler. He, he, <laughs> Stop he, talking he, like that. <laughs> well, he, it was. It's quite. It was quite a rigorous education. They went for, uh, to school from sun sun up to sundown. He studied Latin, studied Greek, um, you know. So it wasn't the typical uh, education that we have, certainly in America, which is just on that. Like I think we've got like contrasting guests today. We've got Kurt, who is that. Um, ethereal metaphysical um, direction. And we've got Koss, who I think is probably a more um, hustling, bustling materialist. I, I, think, I think back there was a transition in our society away from the platonic. And I just identified at that point only because the platonic, platonic uh, ethereal ideal opposed to where society went with um, Aristotle. And then down the line, we are now more nuts and bolts tangible thinking and reality opposed to that ethereal um, direction that we could have taken. Cos, what do you think of that? Do you, do you allow society to project on you how you would envision yourself and feel about yourself? Or do you allow that um, to emanate from within how you, how you identify yourself? Um, I, I think that's why I identified myself as cool, calm, collective hustler in the beginning, just cause I, I don't really let a lot of things bother me. And, and a lot of people think I'm like, why, why wouldn't you react that way? Even my employees, some of them are like, you know, why, why, why didn't you scream at that person? That, that person just messed up, you know? And like, well, that person needs to be talked to a different way. You know, we need to understand the story behind it and then tackle it and, and construct a new narrative. Um, I don't know. I, I believe in, serenity pray a lot you know god grant me the serenity to accept the things i cannot change the courage to change the things i can and the wisdom to know the difference and so living that knowing that i can't change things right away but knowing what the difference is you know maybe i could maybe i can't and if i have no control over it you know i need to know that you know and and just step back and not not you know be bothered by it so letting society dictate who I am. I think it does. I think, it, you know, society dictates pretty much everybody's in so, a way in some sort of way. Um, but it doesn't affect me inside. I don't, I don't lose sleep over it. You know, I, yeah. uh, my, my, uh, 
my lady says, how, how do you go to sleep, you know, and sleep well every night? And I don't know. I just don't let shit fuck me over, yeah. uh, you know, so. I love how you describe yourself as cool, calm, collected hustler. Because at first, at first glance, those two words seem to kind of, of cool, calm and collected on the one hand. Hustle is, is sort of the opposite of that. But you've just really beautifully explained how the cool, calm and collected, in a sense, allows the hustle and the hustle doesn't get deep within. Um, I guess I was going to say, have you, have you always been that way? Have you always been cool, calm and collected? Is this, cause some people are just like that from when they're three years old, they're just so chill or, or is it, has it been, um, has it been a transformation to that for you? Uh, yeah, there's definitely, definitely been a, a transformation, transformation in my life. Um, I had, uh, um, I would say like a spiritual awakening, uh, that we woke me up and changed my, my way of thinking, but I always had that a little bit of cool calm, but I, I think I was also persuaded as a young kid out in the street, persuaded by, uh, friends that I needed to react a certain way. Uh, when things happen, and if I didn't react that certain way, uh, then I was considered soft, or I was not considered a, a tough man, um, and which was not me, you know. But I reacted that way because I had to. I felt like I, I had to show these people that this is, you know, that this is how I run stuff, you know. Mm. Yeah, that's 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 profound, Kurt. I wonder whether. Um because I, I've been putting together a thesis, maybe you agree or not, that I, like when I look back to Malcolm X, I feel like he was more that showman, that violence out in your face, whereas I believe that Martin Luther had the same sort of grounding in violence that, or he was at least capable of it, and that's why his, his message was so much greater that actually the violence like emanates from his voice and his reason to say, well, this is the time to stop. Do you, do you agree that... that um, there's a contrast with Malcolm X and Martin Luther in, in how they um, have their narration and, and the violence that they, that they use as their, as their narrative. But I think Martin Luther King, I was reading, uh, he in his young days used to run around and I think that he probably has some skeletons in his closet um, and has, some, has the violence at his hands but then said later in the years, look, look, I'm capable just as anyone else, but this is the time that we need to stop the violence and change the narrative because um, we're not progressing. Do you, do you think that um, Malcolm X uh, was a transition or a contrast to that? Was a showman with his violence? I think that what happens in transformation is you have an event in your life that is cataclysmic. For Malcolm, it was going to India and meeting Gandhi. Um, and um, for Martin Luther, he, he was of a Christian, black Christian church, right? Um, so there, there was spirituality in, in his world from the very early on. I'm not sure that I know what the cataclysmic event in his life that took him to nonviolence, uh, but there's some. There was something there that 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 hit him, and and all of a sudden, 
he saw the world in a different way. And in seeing the world in a different way, began to pursue a different path. Um, so I see similarities between them because I see similarities in any human being's transformation in that it is a cataclysmic event, even though it may be a very small event, it may not be very big, but it's a cataclysmic event inside the human being. Or, or, or even conscious of it. And I only draw that conclusion because Koss said he was a, a, an activist of sorts. And I, I, I see Koss more as a, as a um, Martin Luther King Jr. activist and non, a, 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 a pacifist activist rather than uh, the, the violent one. I wonder, you've made this transformation now. Was there something cataclysmic in your experience where you decided that you would go into delving how you understand your identity and humanity? Absolutely. Um, but I also do respect uh, Malcolm X and, and I do respect his, his actions. Uh, I wish we had Malcolm X day, you know, I wish, I wish there was a national day for him because uh, he, was, he was a beast. And if you look at his story, he was an, an incredible person. Um, yeah, I mean, my, my spiritual transformation happened in a, in a nine by six prison cell. Um, when I was in solitary confinement. Um, I ended up in solitary confinement because uh, an officer placed his hands on me. I turned around on the officer and, uh, and, and the officer thought I was gonna attack him. So they, they pressed the alarm for the prison. They beat me down. They stuck me in solitary, cuffed. Um, they beat me down again. And I thought I lost everything um, being in prison with only two months left uh, towards my release. Uh, I thought, you know, this, this officer was going to take away everything from me, you know, and, and he did take away time from me, time for my son, time for my family. Um, I ended up doing an extra year in prison behind that situation. But while I was in that, in that cell in 24 hour lockdown um, with nothing to do, I, I was, I was stressed. I felt hopeless. I, I was uh, pacing back and forth in my prison cell, um, thinking, how can I get back? How can I fight uh, back with this officer and, and blaming everyone else for, you know, the actions that took part of my life. I felt, you know, that there was so many unfair uh, situations that happened in my life that shouldn't have happened. Um, and, and it was everybody else's fault. It was not my fault. And so, uh, in that prison cell, uh, when you go into solitary, they in, in New York State, um, they gave me paper, pen, and an envelope, and uh, I decided to write a letter. I wrote a huge letter explaining to my family I need a lawyer, I need to fight this case. This officer is trying to, uh, you know, get me three more years in prison with attempt to assault. I enclosed this letter in this envelope, and I realized I had no stamp to send out a letter. In New York State, you're not allowed to send a, a letter out or you have no communications for at least 30 days until you get commissary and you can write your family then. And so I'm in, in the cell, frustrated now that I had no way of communicating with my family. Uh, about a week later, my sister finds out I'm in solitary. Um, she writes me a letter and she's like Mother Teresa's child, super religious person, uh, tells me to read Psalm 91 which states, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. 
I would say of the Lord, he is my shelter and my fortress, my God in who I trust. And I felt like when I, well, when I read those words, a stamp fell out of my Bible. Um, and that, that was my, that was my moment. That, that was that, that, that moment where just something so simple, or, you know, I don't know how much a stamp was worth back then, like 20 something cents. Um, it fell out of my Bible. And I, I felt like there was something bigger than myself. There was a message that I could send out to my family. There was some, you know, something bigger than myself and something, there was a higher power that, that helped me in that moment. Um, I felt it was a miracle from my end. Um, and, I, and I got to send out my message and I got to get help. And I ended up doing just an extra year and not extra three years behind that situation. But in that moment is where I started my company, um, is where I came up with the idea of Combody uh, to hire people coming out of the prison system to teach fitness classes. And, and, that, and that's where, you know, I had this idea that I was not going to stop and, and, and hustle and just keep on going until I, I feel like I reached that point of success. Amazing. I definitely want to come back to Combody <laughs> and the work you do, because yeah. I'm guessing where you described yourself as an activist, that's related, yeah? So yep. we'll come back to that. But um, I, I've just noted a couple of things that you've both said, coming from different angles, different backgrounds, etc., but really saying very, very similar things. And the first is what Steve just hit on there, this idea of a cataclysmic event or moment that, that spurs that initiates that transformation, which Kurt actually mentioned. What was it for you, Kurt? Um, <clears throat> you know, it, it was my uh, early background. I was born and raised in North Dakota in a town of about 75 people. I went to school with four kids in my grade up through eighth grade. Um, we didn't have a TV. Um, my, our house was on the edge of town and it, was hundreds of thousands of acres of farmland. Um, it's, it's big sky country. It's uh, the aurora, aurora borealis. And because you're closer to the curve of the earth, it's, it can be, it can be, well, the early settlers, if you read anything about the early settlers that, that went to the prairie, many of them went mad um, because of the, uh, the vastness and the emptiness and the, the silence. And I think uh, uh, I, I can understand that madness, um, but it, it didn't affect me because I was struck by the wonder of Mother Nature. So I, I was raised in her bosom. Um, my parents were farm kids. They were the kids of immigrants that came from Norway and Iceland and settled in North Dakota and homesteaded. They escaped the family farm by becoming teachers. I'm the eldest of five children. I, I, I was raised in a community that, I was raised in a family that had compassion and empathy. I learned empathy from my mother. Um, and because her father was a severe alcoholic and he was a severe alcoholic because of the trauma he suffered in World War I when he was a soldier on the front at 17 years old. And, um, and, and could never talk to anyone about the horrors that he witnessed and the horrors that he perpetrated on others in war. Um, so there's, you know, it's, it's, it's all of those things. I started reading um, uh, books on uh, metaphysics and mysticism and uh, uh, 
philosophy at a very young age, probably sixth grade, um, we would make the journey to a town about 65 miles away, a much bigger town, maybe 30,000 people, still quite small, but they had a bookstore. And that's where I, I would go, is they drop the family off and, and that's where I'd go and, and spend hours um, browsing the books and always picking a book or two out to come home with. Um, they were they were not your standard fare. They were not um, books that that uh, rural North Dakota boys should be reading, I guess. But 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 I uh, you you escape into literature. You know that's what my love of literature is. I became a poet when I was in third grade. Consciously made a decision that I was a I was going to be a poet. Uh, and um, you know that it's cumulative. It's 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 my 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 experiences that I had as a child in the family and all of that uh, uh, shaped me. And and I got on a path. And you start reading uh, books on metaphysics and and philosophy and 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 uh, other religions, theology, uh, non-theistic. Uh, you know, it's, it, it takes you somewhere else because I wasn't having those conversations with my siblings or my parents or with anybody in the town. Um, it was like a secret life. Um, so was and, it an inevitable slide towards Shakespeare or? Yeah, well, th that's, that's a much more testosterone driven thing. So when I, it was uh, 1969, um, we had a town 10 miles away that had 3,000 people and it had an outdoor movie theater and an indoor movie theater. And it's the time that Franco Zeffirelli's um, Romeo and Juliet came out and I took my girlfriend to it. Uh, and I was profoundly struck because I still think it's, it is the best film adaptation of Shakespeare. It's, it's so brilliantly cut and he stuck to the language and he hired amazing actors and, so uh, I fell in love with Shakespeare and I fell in love with his ability to tell stories. But my, I also, this is where the testosterone comes in. It's like my girlfriend was crying through the thing. And I thought, man, this sounds it's very sexist. I'm sorry. But remember, I was, you know, younger. I said, chicks dig Shakespeare. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, that's what spur, spurred me on. I had a good English teacher in my high school because our little school closed down and we were next next door. So it's a, it's cumulative. It's all these experiences that you have that take you in different directions and, 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 and it just, but it just kept being shaped. I'm, I'm pretty high up on the mountain, right? I'm, I'm on the other side of the mountain. And I always felt in my career and in my life, I was bushwhacking very little, really very little planning, uh, just sort of taking it as it comes. You know, I think I'll go do this. I never said no to any invitation to do something, particularly in the arts, never said no. I, I just say, oh yeah, I can do that. Even I had no experience, but you know, I suffer from the hubris of non-fear of failure. Uh, and it's a fortunate thing if you're an artist because success is built on failure. You have to take risks. And so I've never been afraid to take a risk and still not. It just, I just don't think I can fail. It's what led me into the work inside prisons and working with really tough population, street kids, um, juvenile, juvenile kids in juvie, you know, um, it's, I just don't think I can fail because I just think I'll figure it out. Plus I love the challenge and I, and, and I learned so much from them. So it was, you know, there were, there were little things along the way. It, it ended up oftentimes being, uh, a, a human being that I met someone that 
uh, really uh, inspired me and I wanted to be like them or I wanted to make them proud of the work that I did. Um, so I, I, I have had great mentors along the way and that's really, really important is to, to, to have mentors. I also believe that when you're, you know, it's an old cliche, but when you're ready, the mentor, the teacher will appear. I believe that profoundly because I've experienced that in my life. When I needed that, all of a sudden there was the person, right? So it's like what Cos was talking about, you know, when he when he needed what it is that he needed. The stamp came. It came, yeah. right? But then, it, more importantly, a lot of people wouldn't be as as uh, as uh, I guess intelligent as to recognize it, right? A lot of people would have just went, oh yes, you know, because they don't look any deeper. I've always looked deeper. Um, I've always thought that that life had to be deeper than uh, uh, just material goods or or success in a career or um, you know uh, I, I, I I think of it as an adventure and I'm supposed to be shaped by it so that at the end of it I've had all of these experiences that have made me uh, it goes back to what does it mean to be a human being they've made me a, a, a more compassionate empathetic I strive for empathy. I think that's the peak, right? I, I, I want to die as the most empathetic human being I can be. So I do work that leads me on that journey, right? It's about selective. And then also I've always been willing to accept because I come from rural, poor, poor white people, rural people, you know, didn't have a lot, right? We, we never went hungry because we were agrarian, you know, we raised our own food and stuff. So we were never hungry. You know, my mother made all our clothes because she's very practical, you know, so we, we never went without, but we never had, you know, new bikes. We never had those kinds of things that other kids had that maybe I envied, but, you know, in retrospect, I think I came and I said, well, you know, a bike is a bike as long as it gets me where I'm going. So the way I feel about a car, you know, a car is a car as long as it gets me where I'm going, I'm, I'm okay with it. So I've never had any, and it's a good thing because I went into, I went into the arts. This is an insane. And never insane, had money ever since. Never. I've always had what it is that I need, right? Been able to educate my kids, right? I I I I have a, I own a house. I have what it is that I need. I've never. I've said to my son, as as he, as he was growing up, my I think my most important conversation with him, and we had many of them, was when he when he started on his business career and he was successful at it wildly successful and he made lots of money at it and i said to him don't ever allow the material goods that you buy to take you into debt that you can't get out of because then it'll trap you in a, a business that you may come to loathe right it's like be, beware of that because that's what i saw happening to so many people as they were miserable in their job but they couldn't quit it because they made too good a living and they they just own too much shit. I've never owned other than books, my wife will tell you, and, and records and CDs, you know. Um, my iPod, I still have an iPod and it's got 13,500 songs on it. It's like, mm. what says? There's a lot to unpack there, um, Kurt. Yeah. No, it's pretty straightforward, Steve. What he said was he went into Shakespeare because <laughs> he wanted to make girls cry. That's what I got out of all that. I do. When I do Shakespeare, Girls cry. Both Kurt and Koss found that inspiration from within, which begs, I often ask, do we create the, these, these uh, mentors that you're talking about, Kurt, in our lives? 
are, are we the creators of our future and our destiny? Um, so I, I do think that they're there. I really believe that, profoundly believe that when you're ready, the teacher will appear. That's happened in my life. And I think, and this may, may be too egocentric, but I do think that I am that for others because that's part of my give back mm. for having received that. It's my, I have to give back. I have to play it forward. So this is really interesting, right? So you guys are from different generations, if that's not a rude thing to say. One of you is a country boy. Uh, Koss, I'm guessing you, you, you grew up in the city. Yeah, I grew up in the Lower East Side. Right. And um, pardon me if this is a, a, well, it is a personal question. Do you, you identify as non-white? Yeah, I'm, I'm Dominican. Black oh. mixed with uh, Spanish. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. So we've got different ethnic back backgrounds, different, you know, rural, urban, uh, different generations. There's probably other differences, but I'm hearing really some very similar things coming through the values. Um, these ideas that uh, our context from an early age, our society, our friends, our, all of that stuff tells us who we are and how to behave and that we go through a process of kind of stripping that away to find what's there. And you described yourselves at the beginning in quite different ways, but one thing that's coming through very strongly from, from both of you, and I want to explore this with you, because we didn't quite get there, is that we say you strip it away, you find what's there within. But both of you um, seem to find that sense of meaning and value through connection with others and what you can give to others. So Kurt's told us about that and empathy, and you described yourself as an activist, cost. Now, that to me implies immediately that, you know, uh, you're working with others for others, not just for yourself. Tell us about your activism. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've been marching in the George Floyd marches. I've been uh, uh, protesting about, you know, racism, racism uh, discrimination against, you know, formerly incarcerated people, minorities. Uh, you know, I talked about un unfairness and, and there has been a lot of unfairness because of the color of my skin, um, because of the you know the neighborhood I grew up in, um, you know there was a there was a point where uh, I was stopped three times a day uh, by officers um, because I looked like I was up to no good, you know. And sometimes I was up to no good. Sometimes I'm just going to the bodega, and I had a bag of weed in my pocket. I'm getting stopped, and now I'm spending 24 hours in the system, you know. So uh, th that wouldn't happen in in um, in, <laughs> in North. North Dakota, you know what I mean? Like, it's just a whole different world, you know? So I, that's something that I would, uh, I want to fight, but I want to uh, also refer back to what Kurt was saying. I think he found uh, true success. You know, I, I, I refer, you know, I want to be the most successful, bring my company to the most successful level. And I think what success for me is, uh, you know, everything is provided for us already we have everything. I think my mom is one of the most successful people on this planet. She only makes 15 bucks an hour. She uh, eats the best food because she cooks it. You know, she wears whatever she wants. Uh, she takes a vacation every, you know, every once or twice a year, you know, so, you know, she has everything. 
and I, I think uh, referring back to Psalm 91 is that we trust this process. Um, and, and if we trust this process, everything's going to be all right. If we continually continue to do good, uh, uh, good things will come, but also bad things will come. And, and we need to wipe those things off our shoulders and, and realize everything is temporary. You know, I feel like that got me through so much stuff, just realizing that, you know, everything is temporary. Our, our lives is temporary, but the most successful, you know, I feel like Kurt is, is, is a successful man. You know, he, he has everything he needs, you know, he eats the best food, you know, there's the, the best cattle over there. Um, you know, he's close to Nebraska out there. I've been, I've been a Fargo. I've been, which Fargo is a little bit bigger uh, than where you grew up. You know, that's got to be a big city for you. But um, yeah, I mean, I've been to those, those rural places. And, and I think those people that live calm, collective, uh, like I mentioned in the beginning, are the most successful people because they realize they have everything they need. You don't have to go out there and prove. And, and that's what I want to be an activist for. Uh, you know, advocate at the fact that we have everything we need. We don't have to be fighting. We don't have to go looting. Uh, we don't have to go uh, beating somebody up or, or, or selling something that's, you know, going to hurt somebody to get what we want. You know, I sold a lot of drugs in my life and I felt at one point that I, I was destroying lives. And that's when I realized that I needed to change my life. You know, I was not only affecting my family, but I was affecting the people that I sold drugs to and the people that, you know, were part of those people's lives. And so I was creating a web of destruction and I want to fight and act and be an activist for true success. You know, we have everything God will provide. Now I'm not like those, a super religious person. Uh, and by God or whatever you mean, God is, it could be a higher power. Um, you know, the planet, the universe will provide, you know, anything we need, uh, as long as we, we trust it to provide. Um, you know, there's been so many moments in my life where I feel like it's going to be over. This is, I'm done, you know, like, or I'm going to be late to a meeting because the train is late and I'm like, let me just breathe and calm down. And the train appears on, you know, out of nowhere and it provides and I get there right on time and I make it or that person's late to the meeting when I'm getting there. You know, so uh, there's just, you know, just trusting that process, trusting that everything's going to be okay and, and just live, having a level headed. And I feel like that's where my uh, company has been uh, successful at um, and, and showing up and delivering a great product every single day, you know, showing up and delivering, showing up and delivering. I felt yeah. like I did the same thing when I was selling drugs in the street. You know, I, I, I was selling in a, in a milk, sitting on a milk crate in the corner of Bodega, which is a grocery store out here, you know, sitting on a corner selling Coke and crack. But I, I woke up every day. I had the best product and I continuously did it every single day. And I felt like that was, you know, what made me reach where I reached in that, in that time, you know, I made millions of dollars in the streets. Um, and I felt like, you know, that's all I had to do, you know, when I came home was, continuously show up every single day and deliver a great product, you know? Yeah. Um, Tell us a bit more about your company now, because we, it does not yet, yet exist yeah. in Australia. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's quite brilliant. Tell us something about it. Yeah. So Khan Body is a prison style boot camp. 
where we use only your body weight to exercise with, and we hire people coming out of the prison system to teach fitness classes. Uh, derived from my personal experience where I lost 70 pounds in six months in a prison cell. And then I helped over 20 inmates with over a thousand pounds combined. I, I came up with this idea, uh, started working out because doctors in prison told me that my cholesterol levels were so bad uh, uh, that I could probably die in prison of a heart attack. And, and I was placed on medication. So that's where, where Combody was derived, and that's what we do today. We have a fitness studio right here in this same neighborhood where I grew up at. We actually opened up the studio on the same drug corner where I sell drugs at. Um, we moved into a bigger location not too long ago uh, down the block. But, yeah, it, it came back to a full circle, and, and, and that's what we do. And do I understand correctly, you only employ people who've done time? except for my uh, CFO, who's a white Jewish kid from Westchester that handles all my money. Who perhaps <laughs> should have done time, but just was never caught. Yeah, he's the biggest criminal I know. Yeah, right. Because I was going to say, you know, I mean, I spent a lot of years selling drugs as well. I just didn't get caught for that. <laughs> and the color of my skin probably has a lot to do with why I didn't get caught. That was a long time ago. Statutes of limitation of past constable. <laughs> Alleged drugs. Alleged drugs. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> so I think that's fascinating because a lot of people who you know have records can't get work. There are a lot of people who won't employ them. Um, so, but you're doing more than just providing an opportunity uh, for people yeah. who deserve an opportunity and haven't had opportunities you're also kind of to me it seems and this is a personal obsession of mine so tell me if i'm projecting um you're sending a, a, a message perhaps to the rest of the world about what it means to you know to have had a record or to have done time do you feel that that's true yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's part of my, our mission statement is to change the perspective of of formerly incarcerated people. Uh, I, you know, the people that come to our, our our fitness studios are primarily you know white young females from the ages of twenty five to thirty five. Uh, they come in with the perception that they're going to be screamed at, uh, that you know we're 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 scary people, we're you know locked up predators. You know what what you know, these TV shows have been showing for years, you know, this, this, this known perception. Uh, but when they come in and they get greeted at the front desk and you show them around, you know, where this is where you get changed. This is where you're going to be working out. This is going to be an instructor. They're like, wow, these people are so nice. You know, I didn't, I, and, and they could be look, they look like big, scary black men. Um, and, and that's what, that's what the news show, that's what media has shown for years. So I want to really change that perspective. Uh, and we, we, we need to change it because that, all that stuff has been derived through original racism in the beginning through, you know, slavery on and with on, you know, through Martin Luther King days, through Malcolm X days, Kurt, you know, you probably lived through those days, uh, not to tell your age. Um, but yeah. <laughs> Um, no, I, I was there. 
That's have you yeah, seen Malcolm that's... X where he's up on the banner with the bull? Kurt's in yeah. that photo. Gets shown all the time. Kurt's standing behind Malcolm X on that platform. Oh, wow, wow, wow. I'm, that's a blessing. That's a blessing. Yeah. But you know what? When I went through that, as we all did, in Vietnam, my draft number was 29. Um, the I was very fortunate that three months or four months before I was going to have to go or make a decision, right? And I was a pacifist, so I was a CO, conscientious objector, didn't know if I'd go to prison or didn't know if I'd go to Canada. Um, the universe uh, it didn't uh, make me make that decision because the draft ended be about three or four months before my deferment, my college deferment was up. Mm -hmm. So that was a blessing. But I had family, I had friends, you know, that went, I, I've, 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 seen the, the 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 rigors of that war in particular but then all the other wars since because i work with uh vets in in prison so when i was going through that i think the one thing that i that, that i kept telling myself is okay we're going to take care of this now and then my kids will not have to go through this and my kids are going through this and my grandkids will go through so that's the that's the very very depressing part of it is uh, so many sacrifices were made back in the late 60s and early 70s i was minimally affected the way others who gave their lives were affected um and and it's like you know here we are again here we are again uh, but I'm hopeful this time because as I look at the millions and millions of people who are marching across this country and around the world, what do I see? I see all colors, all ages, all socioeconomic levels marching together side by side. That's what I see. Uh, we all know that 45 was not elected by the 30% that are his base. 45 was elected by the 45% of eligible voters that didn't go to the polls in 2016. They elected 45. And what I see and what makes me hopeful is now I see that base of, I think I see a lot of 45, of that 45% out there marching together. And if we can just keep marching all the way up until November, we will win by a landslide, even though the GOP will cheat like hell. Um, and and push a lot of buttons to try to maintain power but the the real underbelly of this country and really the world is racism and it's all of our social ills in america and i suspect that's true in australia come from racism every ill that society has comes from racism so We've maybe this time, you know, maybe in my lifetime before I go, maybe I will see uh, the rebuilding. I don't think we're going to solve it quickly, but I do believe profoundly that it can be solved because I believe in my children and I believe in my grandchildren. Kurt, if I understand you right, because I'm seeing this too in my kid's generation. Um, she's not even a teenager yet, but oh my God, uh, her and her friends politically aware, engaged, involved in a way that was just unthinkable. I didn't even have the words for it at that age. And I think we've lived through at least a generation 
of disenfranchisement and lack of political awareness in the English-speaking world. So you see that low voter turnout that you see in the US. In Australia, we have compulsory voting, but we still have, you know, people going, oh, that's politics. I don't do politics. I'm not political, which is, I mean, everyone's political by definition. If you live in a society, that's political. But compared to somewhere like parts of Europe or Africa, where, you know, I've witnessed a very high level of political engagement and philosophical engagement, there's like, you know, philosophy columns in the newspapers in the Netherlands and, and stuff like this. And I, I'm hoping that that um, the English speaking world is is coming to a, a level of political awareness and engagement. And that I think maybe that's what all of us are saying that coming together across boundaries in the street, even if it means some shit gets smashed up, uh, is a necessary first step. I don't know, what do you guys think? I think um, I think getting things smashed up uh, brought things to light. You know, I'm not agreeing to, you know, breaking into stores, you know, and stuff like that, but um, I think that, that brought a message. And if, and if it would not happen, uh, you know, things probably would not have been taken serious. Um, I, I think that the small number of people who are doing that destructive uh, uh, carnage, I think it's tiny compared to the massive that are marching peacefully. I think it actually got people off their ass and into the streets because they went, that's not me. I'm not going to tear up that business or burn it down or steal that stuff. So I think it's a means to an end. Um, I think it, it pulled more people out because uh, I, th th look at the crowds in here in America. They just keep growing. They just keep growing. But also, uh, not sorry to cut you off, Kurt, but also like I think um, these, these mostly young people that went and looted uh, are, are kids that, you know, are growing up in bad neighborhoods, you know, and I think if I would have been a, a kid, a teenager, you know, and had an opportunity to, you know, go into a Rolex store and, and take a million dollars in Rolexes and nobody's going to catch me, I, I think I'm going to do it, you know, like, um, so I think as society put these people in, in this situation and, 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 and you're young, you know, when you're young like that, you see your friends doing it might as well take advantage of it. They see an opportunity. Uh, I'm not saying it's right, um, but I think uh, we need to realize that the youth is gonna take tent more temptations than any, any older. You know, the greatest heartbreak with that looting is, mm -hmm. I've seen story after story on TV about minority-owned businesses that were yeah. looted, destroyed. Yeah where the thought disappears if you're gonna go do that go 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 get rodeo drive go there because yeah. there ain't any minority businesses family run sweat mm -hmm. equity right but don't do it in your own neighborhood where you're you know you're killing that sm that small town that's yeah. that small business person I agree. I agree, Kurt. Can I just say that that's where I think the narrative needs to change away from the Malcolm X violence looting and into uh, the Martin Luther King pacifism. But I think the narrative needs to change around the dining room table too. Um, I, I think the young people need to be empowered that actually um, 
these projections from outside, they're all, they're all illusory. They're all made up. Racism, all the rest of it. And, and I know there are actual effects, but these young people, black, white, Hispanic, whoever, have that power within themselves to be president of the United States, to be out there and to do whatever they actually can and want to do from whatever background or socioeconomic background or geography. Um, I think that's what the narrative needs to change, the rhetoric away from the violence in the past and the history into a new awakening of, of where we're headed now. And, and teach our kids, uh, you know, put them in front of different races. Uh, I had a talk the other day where this black woman, she, she faces, she does color painting on, on children and she went into this all white neighborhood uh, and she's like very, very dark skinned and, and they never seen anybody that's black and all the kids ran running when they said, oh, face coloring. And when they saw her, they got scared and they're like, oh, I don't want to get face colored, you know? Uh, because they never came in contact with anybody that's col colored. So I think we need to restart uh, integrating kids, youth, you know, I think from one, two, three, you know, remixing the races and, and breaking down that stereotypes really early. I've got an idea here, Cost, that I'm going to try and start through the butcher and the block when we get on air. I'm going to call it the new Australia Day. We have Australia Day here where the, uh, the Europeans landed and colonised this country but there's a sector of the, our community that call it Invasion Day. So I want to try and project out into communities New Australia Day, and the idea is bring three or four guests to your family barbecue outside of your group. And if we can, if we can have, you can have Pakistanis, you can have Muslim, you can have LGBTQI. How many letters in that these days? LGBTQI? <laughs> 28, 28 letters. There's 28 letters. Everyone is covered in that. Let's just all fall into that. Basically, LGBTQIS as straight. Or I think that's exactly right. And that's what I try and am going to get around my friends. This Australia Day, when we have our barbecue in the backyard, bring three or four people from outside. And I think, and I think bringing a conversation to, to light and when you have everybody together that, you know, you know get, make people uncomfortable. Yes. Also feel empathetic like Kurt was saying you, you need to understand that you know I didn't grow up like you know Kurt grew up or Kurt didn't grow up like I grew up you know and I got to understand that we grew up in a different time and 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 just really understand each other and learn each other you know yeah but it, it strikes me how at the heart of it your humanity to use a very overused word is 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 the, the same it's very similar um, you know, your heart, your values are aligned. Um, yeah, and I think in Australia, I mean, we have the, the, the manifestations of those divides are somewhat different. Um, in a sense, I think you guys have the advantage of, of having had a couple of wars. Um, the War of Independence, and I'm not saying it's a great thing, let's have some wars, but the War of Independence allowed you to kind of go, no, not a colony. And the Civil War was a kind of a reckoning with the history of slavery. We have never had that reckoning with our, our historical past in Australia. Uh, and there are a lot of people who want to just move on. Oh, forget about that happened, you know, 100, 
200 years ago, although the stolen generations happened in recent memory, in living memory. But still people want to say, oh, that was 30 years ago. Let's forget about it. But you can't begin something new by forgetting about the past. There has to be some kind of a reckoning, a coming together, perhaps as Steve describes that, yeah. I suspect the people that are saying, let's forget about it, are fairly comfortable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah and, they, and they're okay with their comfort. So that's why they, ah, let's forget about it. Because they didn't suffer that. They, they're yeah, well, not... it's not the indigenous people saying, let's forget about it. That's for sure. No. Yeah. But there's also the, the narrative that uh, the characteristics um, that we have as people have been carried over through the generations. Uh, trauma, grief, um, happiness, uh, that's all carried over. So some of the, some of the way we feel naturally um, has, been, has been progressed for hundreds of thousands of years. And in our generation, not in our, in our lives, in our short history, like the Bible is, even back to the Bible is 2000 years, but that's like a speck of how long we've been growing as people and understanding our environment. And, and in, in 400 years or 200 years, we're still carrying those characteristics from hundreds of thousands of years ago. So even the healing process that we said, okay, today's the day, we still need time to heal from the past. Absolutely. Hey, I've got one thorny question. I don't know if it's thorny or not, we'll find out. I've got a question for Kurt. Um, just because of the work that you do, which we haven't talked about in great detail, uh, but people can always uh, go and visit your website. Um, and there's a lot of wonderful material there. The website is, um, it's Shakespeare Behind Bars. Am I correct, uh, Kurt? Is that the... Dot or, yes, dot .org. Dot .org. Shakespearebehindbars.org. There's a brilliant award-winning documentary there. There's... Um, a lot of <clears throat> great material. And you've heard us, if you're a regular listener, talk about <clears throat> Shakespeare in prisons before. You know that's how Steve and I met. We've had some guests who have been practitioners of that kind of work here in Australia. Um, and uh, we've talked a little bit with, with those guests about uh, how it can be transformative for the people who participate in it. And equally as importantly, how it can be transformative for people who are exposed to it in, in breaking down that divide, They're going, oh, these people are just like me, um, you know, uh, finding that common humanity. I guess uh, because we've, we've brought the, the discussion around also to matters of race and identity, um, the, the question I would have, and in part it's because we have, um, we've, we've met some barriers um, bringing Shakespeare into some regional Australian prisons uh, because there, there are people who say, well, we don't want that Shakespeare stuff here. That's not our story. That belongs to a different culture, a different time. Mm -hmm. um, Indigenous people saying, well, you bring us this white man's shit. We're not doing that. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, if my memory serves me right, Kurt, uh, the, the, the incarcerated people you work with, uh, white folks and certainly Anglo white folks would be in the minority in that population, yeah. which is ironic. Um, how, how do, do you come up against that question and, and how do you address it? Why, why are you bringing this colonialist white man shit in here? 
I think that, that the guys that join the circle, it's a voluntary program. The guys that join the circle get that from other guys on the yard, much more so than I get it. Uh, um, it and, 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 you know, it comes up, it can come up quite strongly about that with a pushback against guys wanting to come up and, and be a part of the Shakespeare behind bar circle. Um, then if they, you know, if they're human enough and they come to one of our performances, that can change them, that can transform them, that can, the, the doubters, the ones that are the doubters. Um, really, uh, the work that I do is, is, uh, is transformational work. Uh, it revolves around trauma. Uh, trauma cannot heal unless the person who has suffered the trauma can articulate it in their own words. And some traumas are so horrific that they, they don't have language for it, but Shakespeare does. And that's why I use art, theater, Shakespeare, and original writing to get at what it means to be a human being. I can find in Shakespeare uh, eloquent words, words of depth that, that, that have cognitive, uh, uh, emotional, spiritual, and metaphysical connections that when someone begins to work on that language and the goal of the language of course is to create the deepest truth possible to to be to uh, uh become that character to, to in an in an emotionally intellectually spiritually truthful way so um it, it that's when that happens then they begin to understand oh oh this kind of this stuff wow, this is sort of parallel to mine experience, even though the character is a king, Richard II, uh, and I was never a king. Um, uh, well, you know, there are some Latin kings, right, that I, that I yeah. have to probably make a parallel with that. But, you know, what it is is that they spend, my guys out on the yard spend a lot of time, they're really, they're really advocates and activists, but they're not actively recruiting anybody. What happens is, and I hear this time and time again, why did you join? I joined because I saw this guy on the yard who was a member of the circle, and I've known him for 20 years, and he's a son of a bitch. But then <laughs> he changed, and then I thought he was fronting me, and he was a big front, and then I realized, no, that's really him, and then I got curious about that. One of the young guys that joined us last year he had come to prison. He had taken a rap. He, he, he grew up in the streets, right? And he was a member of the gang. And so you're going to be loyal to the gang. And what he did is that he took a rap that he uh, didn't do because he thought it was the right thing to do. So he took the rap and came to prison. Now he's got a life bit because he, 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 he it was misplaced loyalty. So he, he, when he came to prison, he was, he was fairly young and always in level five. He was always in the highest securest prison because he was he was fighting all the time he was just he was he was he was a maniac he arrives he, he starts this downward journey meaning that his behavior improves enough to move to a prison that's less restrictive and he ends up on my prison yard which is a level four on one side of the fence and a level two on the other side 
And level four would be out and could walk around and look through the fence and see what was happening on level two. And level two has lots more yard time, you know, big, huge open spaces and they're playing ball and, you know, walking and, you know, so it, it, and it's, 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 it's constructed in that way purposefully because they want the level four guys to get their act together so that they can come to level two where there are less restrictions and more opportunities. So he, he tells, tells this story that, he had just arrived on the yard and he had, had a little bit of yard time and he was standing looking through the fence and he said, I saw this little guy who was standing off all by himself and he had some food in his hands and he was feeding squirrels and birds. They were swarming around him. And I thought, I got to get to level two. I want to feed those squirrels and those birds. Well, he, again, he self-policed himself, right? Because the only way you're going to get is you have to gain points and get across and your points are all based on behavior. So he did. He got enough po positive points that they moved him across to level two. The first thing that he did is he went and sought out that guy. Well, it was one of our guys. It was one of our Shakespeare behind bars guys. So that's why he wanted to join because he saw that he needed, not like, unlike what Cause said, you know, I, 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 got, I got sick and tired of being sick and tired and I wanted to do something different, right? I mean, that's a very common story. And he, he just wanted something more for his life. And he wanted more for his life for his mother because his mother didn't raise a criminal. And he was, had deep shame about being involved in the gangs. And so he's one of our superstars now because uh, he made the decision. He wants something more. Do I think he's going to spend his life in prison? I don't. He's, he's, he's a model prisoner. He's highly intelligent. He's educating himself. And I think he's going to get the opportunity to get out and go home because uh, uh, we, we've, we're, we're letting prisoners go. And in, 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 in COVID-19, right, it's forcing us to try to get prisoners out. So we're letting as many nonviolent offenders and as many non-risk to society go as we can. Um, I just had a guy, that guy that was feeding the squirrels, his nickname is G. He did 30-year bits straight. He went home a week before Christmas this year. Oh, wow. And uh, you're, you're right. I do have far more non-Caucasian people in the circle than, than, than Caucasians. I do have far more undereducated, not underintelligent, highly intelligent, but undereducated in the circle. Um, and what they love about Shakespeare is, is that Shakespeare challenges them and that mm -hmm. not everybody can do it. That's what they love about it. It proves that they have a brain, proves that they can figure things out, proves that they have talent. The talent comes out and all of that stuff. It's beautiful. Yeah. What we want to get to is, are you happy? How do you identify it? What is going to sustain your happiness, or is it irrelevant? Yeah, if we can double, if I can double down on that, Steve, shut me up if you don't agree. Are you happy, and what would make you more happy? I'm, I'm good, man. I'm, I, I think I, I've been blessed, and I feel like I have everything I need. Uh, and what would make me more happy? Um, I guess uh, maybe spend more time with my my son. Um, you know, it, it's been a difficult time through, you know, the whole COVID coronavirus. Uh, he lives with his mom uh, up in the Bronx and, um, 
and I'm down downtown Manhattan. So she's, it's been, it's been hard. I, I've only like seen them twice in person, but mostly through video. Um, so I think that would make me a bit more happy. Good. Uh, so I told you a little bit about my early, early, uh, uh journey into widening my, uh, sphere of, of understanding. Um, and I was in essence, I guess could be related to searching for the Holy grail, right? I was searching for meaning, right? And so, and I think I had to go through that because I thought you had to look for meaning, right? But so that one of the major transformational moments is when I realized you don't look for meaning, you make meaning, right? So then I had to answer the question, well, what is, what is that? And it's being of service to others. What would make me more happy is right now I'm locked out of the prisons. I probably won't get back in until there's a vaccine. So we're looking at 2021, maybe 2022, because prisons are extremely cautious. They're not gonna take risks and stuff. So the only thing that would make me happier would be being back in prison, that there would be a, a vaccine that we could get control over this. And I could be back in prison working with the guys. Um, that should go on your tombstone, man. The only thing that would make me happier is being back in prison. And then in a bigger, bigger perspective is, is that we could really dig deeply into uh, uh, racism uh, and, the, and how racism is, is just so imbued worldwide. Morgan Freeman said recently that uh, the way to escape racism is to take it out of the narrative. Is, is that capable, that it's just, it just becomes irrelevant, that you don't bring it up, that it's not talked about? I tell you, I, one of the things that I really wish that, 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 that I'm really at a loss for is the fact that with, I wish I was in the circle because I would like to be going through these protests with the guys, right? Because those are, you know, they've got uh, police brutality all over their backs. And I would just like to be there with them, talking to them about it. How do they see it? Because I didn't experience that. You know, I'm fortunate in, in, in I guess, fortunate in one sense of the, the, the way of looking at it is I, I'm a white male, right? So I'm at the top at the, of the pyramid. So I, I would just, and then I would really, really ask them to be deathly honest and they couldn't hurt my feelings if they told me how it is I might be perpetuating racism without even knowing it. Yeah. I, you know, cause I can learn from that. I don't think of myself as a racist person. Right. But I, the, you know, but there's gotta be something there. Right. We joke a lot uh, about it and that's what guys do. And, you know, at locker room, it's like, it's what guys do. They, they're seventh graders. They're, they're yeah. doing locker room talk. Right. You know, it's like when I, when I say something to one of the guys, uh, you know, that, that may be a bit disciplinary, you know, you got, dude, you got to put more effort on this. The response will come back. Yeah, that's right, Kurt. Put the black man down. Go ahead. Put the black man down. You know, we joke about it, right? Well, you know, the death of Mr. Floyd, the death of anybody that even preceded Mr. Floyd uh, uh, is relevant. But the death of Mr. Floyd in this moment in time is, uh, I just, I just really uh, want to, sit with them and reflect on it and ask them how I as a white person 
because they think I walked on water. You know, they they they, they call me the white do-gooder. Here comes that white do-gooder again. You know, because I I spent my time with them in prison, right? When nobody wants to spend time with them. But it isn't about that. It's about I get so much out of it. I learn so much from the process because I didn't have these experiences, you know? I didn't have the kind of trauma in, in my life that they have in their life. And I think they're heroic and they're noble because they survived. They're alive for God's sake. And I can't say categorically that I wouldn't have done what it is that you did had I grown up in your situation. No, hell no, I'd, I'd have done exactly what you did, right? Probably a lot worse. So um, that's, what I, that's what I miss is those conversations for them to be able to make me a more empathic human being. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It, it's lucky that some, the activists these days are saying we want equality, not revenge, because it yeah. could be a very different America today if uh, if if we weren't if people weren't walking in the streets. Yeah, yeah. Uh, from the from the vision I saw, cost from from here outside of the bubble, I, I just like Rosa Parks comes to, comes to mind. You ha we, we see all the uh, people on the TV, the Malcolm X's of that era, the Martin Luther King, uh, King Juniors. But to me, Rosa Parks was just no one from no one, from nowhere, back city, who just said, look, like with tears in their eyes, almost some of the men that I'm seeing, we are just fucking fed up. Let's just change this fucking narrative. And to me, Rosa took on the whole community and said, that is it. This is the end of the line. I've had enough. Yeah, I think she was just non-complacent. And, and I think that's what activism is, you know, that you're not going to be complacent. You're not going to be, uh, I don't know about what Morgan Fre Freeman said about, you know, not talking about it. I think we definitely need to talk about it. I think we need to not be complacent and, and think that everything's going to be all right and that I'm not going to continue facing racism. Um, we, we, need to, we need to talk about the problem. We need to fix the problem. Um, and I think I think uh, Morgan Freeman doesn't talk the kind of language about that that I think is deep enough. I'm a Spike Lee guy. I'm going to Spike <laughs> yeah. every time. So Morgan you know? Freeman's not on the street level. So I love that. Just don't be complacent. And I think I'm fired up now. I'm going to go not be complacent. Look, this has been a wonderful, fascinating, freewheeling, beautiful conversation. We've probably taken up way too much of everyone's time. Uh, any final words from either of you? Uh, well, I just want to thank you for inviting me. It's it's great to hear about Cause and and you know and what he's doing and his story because it's the stories. I mean, I'm a storyteller, but I'm also a story listener too. I enjoy people's stories, so that's that. That, that that's always a joy is to hear somebody else's story and then the success that they're bringing to their own story and their own narrative. And uh, it's great to see Steve again and, and Rob's my brother. So I'm, I always enjoy spending time with him. Again, yeah, I was gonna piggyback to saying thank you. Uh, it's, it's an honor to meet Kurt. I, I saw the, I haven't seen the whole documentary, but I've seen the trailers a while back. Uh, you look a little bit different on, on camera. You look, I don't know, <laughs> quarantine life got you uh, a <laughs> The other piece of that is I'm, in, I'm actively grieving. And I'm actively grieving because I know that there will be guys that I know and love who I saw for the last time when I was in prison with them, that the virus will kill them because of health, uh, poor health, age, you know, all of those things. So that's, 
that's, I mean, I can't imagine, I mean, the story kept coming up over and over and over again, these folks in the emergency rooms that get put on ventilators, they die alone. Yeah. Nobody should have to die alone, but they die alone. And so um, I know my guys are supporting each other. They're rehearsing. We're, we're working on Julius Caesar. So I get word out. It's illegal for me to contact them in any way, shape, or form. But I got plenty of guys on the street that, that are contacting them and stuff. They rehearse every moment that they're given a, a open time on the yard or in their units. They're rehearsing Julius Caesar. So when I do get back in there, we'll be ready to go. I, I think everyone's um, experiences contribute to the whole, Kurt. So I don't, I don't believe that they're dying alone. No one may be with them. Um, but all our experiences are developing the wider macrosystems understanding and, and, and closeness and relativeness. You, you two guys are powerful men. Um, just in the way that you are and you express yourselves. And we, we thank you for... Uh, trying to get past the facial words that we all say and, and, and delving deeper into the experiences of, of you two men. We want to thank you for coming on board. We've had a great time. Hopefully we can follow it up one day and do it again. I totally agree. Two powerful, beautiful men. And next time we'll be talking to two equally powerful... Women. Would I say even more beautiful? Sorry, guys. Women. <laughs> so join us then on Between the Butcher... The Block. Block. <laughs> Don't be complacent. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 